I also hadn't thought of turning on the recorder. So could everybody say the same thing you already said one more time? No. So yeah, so Leviticus isn't culturally relevant. And that's important because we are so constantly shifting in what cultural normalcy is, right? Or what's culturally cool for now. Or what's culturally apt. Yes, Mark. I think a little more detail. Uh, obviously, the uh, genealogies of all of those uh, people in, in Leviticus, but sometimes I drive through South Virginia, I see these signs, you know, uh, these signs with street names of people on the corner. I wonder what that guy did. You know, what, what, yeah. Why is that street named after that mm. And we've lost it. It's gone. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we just lost that whole sense of continuity. Right? We've lost that sense of continuity, which is what the, our whole survey of the Old Testament is about anyways. There's a real continuity that we have to be in touch with. Right? Um, and and we, we've talked about, we talked about that, you know? Um, read, when you read the back of the bulletin today, you'll get a sense of that as well, which I happen to write. So, that's why I draw your attention to it. But it, 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 there's a similar theme to that sense of continuity, right? Um, but it's a very bloody book as well, right? Leviticus is, really, it's the Hamburger Hill of Scripture, isn't it, right? So, uh, if you're not familiar with that reference, Hamburger Hill was this really, uh, there was a place in the Vietnam War, was it the Korean War? The, Viet, the Vietnam War called Hamburger Hill because that's what the field looked like. Alright? And I'll just leave the rest to your imaginations. Um, but it's a very bloody book and it's very hard for us to relate to. Okay. Uh, now, now, a moment ago, I asked if anyone has a comment. Y'all have a commentary on the book of Leviticus at home, <laughs> right? Most, most don't, right? But actually, I would say every single one of you, if you have a Bible right now, you have a commentary on the book of Leviticus with you, and you have it with you all the time. It's called the Book of Hebrews, <laughs> right? It really is. I mean, the Book of Hebrews just really—it's sort of—it shows you everything that. You know, Levit- that's going on in Leviticus and takes it and just Jesusifies it, right? So that you get the full concept of everything that's going on here ritual and, and purity and priesthood and, and holiness and atonement is all going on. So, you know, in the book of Hebrews, I, mean, I know you're in that on Thursdays, right? You're, yes. You've been studying that for some time. You're going through the whole book or like scenes? No, we're going through the whole book. We're in chapter 9. Good. Oh, oh, good, good, timely. Yeah, very t- Is anybody in going attending Thursday mornings? So, so, oh, good. So you got a couple. So you'll be able to really additionally appreciate. But I want you. To, hopefully, we all leave with a deeper appreciation for the Book of Leviticus. Uh, really, without a grasp of the significance of this book, the sacrifice of Jesus makes very little sense. Jesus coming, why he came. I mean, there's things we have gleaned from the rest of the Old Testament, of course, but the book of Leviticus really begins to show us some real, real things here about you. Why would it be so necessary? What's. I mean, you look at the. You, we talk about the blood of, of Leviticus and how bloody a book it is and how odd it is to us. Well, it's certainly no odder to us than crucifixion. In fact, we can probably handle Leviticus a little bit better, a little bit easier to handle slaughtering of animals. Right? Um, because we eat animals, <laughs> most of us. We, we see roadkill. We, I mean, we're just familiar with animal death and see it all the time in some pretty brutal ways even, right? If you've ever watched certain shows on, uh, you know, large animal um, processing, you know, for food. <laughs> it's a pretty brutal thing, right? And then... 
we can make ourselves feel a little bit better by buying cageless, you know, eggs raised from cageless chickens and hens that are treated somewhat humanely, which we should. I, you know, I do think, I, I think that's why, you know, I think PETA, right? People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals would have a real difficult time dealing with a few of the things I'll reference from this book, right? They would be like, wow, that's disgusting. You Christians are sick, right? And But you know what? That should be a, that's, that's not a, in a way it's a, if, if you know a lot about Peter, you know, right? But, I thought it was people eating tasty animals. Yes, it is. It is. It is. But, but, but there is a sense in which, you know, we're going to have stewardship over creatures and all that. So, so they have a twisted sense of, they have a twisted sense of having dominion, you know, what dominion should or shouldn't look like. But, you know, um, right? But, but, have, but having said that, the, 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 um, the whole sense of, of, of seeing animals and things, it, it's not so strange to us. We can almost tolerate in our minds a little bit. We can imagine slitting the throat of an animal and watching the, the blood literally just gush. I mean, you, you, there's some sizable creatures that are sacrificed in Leviticus. And, and you know, I don't, I, just, a, just a comment. I mean, yeah. I, you know, that was kind of an off the cuff. I couldn't resist it. That's a good one, though. No, but I see that. But, but realistically, you know, I mean, it, the treatment of animals is really, really, the humane treatment of animals yes. is very, very important. Sure. It's not. Yeah. You know, and so I, I kind of make light of it just because they're so wacky. But yes, uh, but I, I do believe that it's very, very important for the human. And, and I don't, and, and I think that's what makes the sacrificial yes. uh, prospects of this, you know, yes. really important for us to understand because yep. it is serious. You yep. know, this is not you taking a life of anything. It's mm-hmm. a very serious thing. What he said, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, it's so important. And that's part of uh, as we're getting into the sacrificial system. We're we're, we're meant to see that uh, as well. So, a couple of very interesting things here. So, Leviticus 1.1 starts out, the Lord called and spoke to Moses to him from the tent. Somebody read Numbers 1.1. Somebody open up, not Leviticus, but Numbers uh, chapter 1, verse 1 for me. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Is that Leviticus or Numbers? Oh, no. One night, I'm sorry, Leviticus. That's all right. That's all right. Read it again then. Read it again. Stay there and read it. Somebody else will go to Numbers. No, 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 no. It's important. Go ahead. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak... Oh, is that it? That's good. Now somebody read Numbers 1-1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. Yeah. A critical distinction in that. I believe preposition there. You can homeschool and moms and dads can correct me. Huge, enormous difference between Leviticus one one and Numbers one one. Anybody catch it? Anybody catch it? So in Leviticus one one, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. In Numbers one one, we see the Lord called and spoke to him in the tent of meeting. And the book of Leviticus is all about how do we get from Leviticus one one to Numbers one one? How do we get where we can be in the presence of God? Because you recall. That after the golden calf finished, and after the tent was done, and everything like at the end of Exodus, the cloud filled, and Moses could not enter the tent because of the glory of the Lord filled the tent. Right? It would have would have would have would have been the end of Moses. Would have been the end of Moses. Leviticus is a very danger. Keep back statement about God. Okay, God is extremely powerful, and He's very good, and He is extremely dangerous. A holy God is an extremely dangerous God for sinners to be around. 
Okay? And in, in, in the in again, we don't need a whole lot more to attest to that than all of the, the butchery that we see happening in this old covenant. It's, it's keep away. It's a high voltage. Right? We, I mean, we're 93 million miles from the sun, and look what overexposure to the sun can do to the human skin. Right? Uh, or, or certainly to the human eyes. I mean, you can't stare at the sun. Right? Without <laughs> glasses, you'll destroy your retina. So, and that's 93 million. 93 million miles away. Okay, that's a sp- amount of space we can't even comprehend. We could never get there. We, 93 million miles away. And that's what a gaseous ball can do to us. Well, God made that. And other suns bigger and, and, and more powerful than it, too. God made that. And so there's a sense in which that gives us a pretty good uh, picture of what we're looking at when we consider this holy God. Okay? In uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan, if you don't know, does anybody not know that story? Does anyone not know the Chronicles of Narnia? So, if you don't, you should rent it and watch it. I think it's such a good allegory. Really, is very rich. C.S. Lewis, such a genius. Anyway, Aslan is the lion who clearly represents the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so there's a scene in there uh, where they're coming together and they meet the beaver family, right? Because they're trying to get the whole Narnia Ice Queen thing is going on. So in their, in their encounter, trying to escape and get away and rescue their brother and all that, they encounter the this ice witch. Uh, but they also come across this, this husband and wife, this beaver family, and they're talking to them. And the young girl, there are three kids, uh, four, two girls and two boys in this family, and they're talking to these lions. And the little girl, uh, uh, somebody said, uh, the beaver said, Mr. Beaver said, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. She's a little girl. I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? Said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Right? No, God is not safe. There's another scene in there, too, where uh, I, I forget exactly who it was. It says, after all, he's not a tame lion. God is not safe. He's a very unsafe being to be around in an unregenerate state. In an unholy state. He, he's, he's, he's holy, holy. Everything, wherever God is, it's not just that you know, when you have a wood stove, you have that intense heat right at the center, and then it radiates out, and eventually you get away from the intensity of the heat. Not so God. I mean, the intensity of God's holiness is just every, everywhere. I often wonder why he said, take off the feet from which you are standing, because you're standing on holy ground. It's like, I would think I want something between my feet and the earth. <laughs> I'm going to be standing on holiness. I've never quite understood that myself. But in any case, it's a point about God's holiness. So you recall, our objective here as we uh, survey the Old Testament, hi Bev, as we survey the Old Testament, is God's rulership of his kingdom, right? Man's response to God's rulership of his kingdom, and then God's response to man's response, right? And, and in Leviticus, what, what's so important, what we see here is, be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 7 and verse 26 Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. You shall be holy to me, 
For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Now that same sort of be holy for I am holy is repeated at least five times in Leviticus. And it's always stated after a command to either do this and not that or eat this and not that or sort of touch this and not that. Touch this and not that. Why? Because I am a holy God. And you are to be holy as I am holy. And touching that will make you unholy. Same thing with the things that they ate. Whatever else might be said about the various foods that they didn't didn't eat and whether or not, I know, the text itself doesn't give us a lot of information about the food they should or shouldn't eat. A lot of people sort of after have said, well, yeah, I mean, pigs are disgusting animals, you know, you shouldn't eat that. My, my boss, son Michael, when he first started working at Pepsi, he's not there now, but he did work there for a couple of years, and the day that he was getting trained, he was getting trained by this guy, Okan. Okan's a Muslim. And so Michael goes to take out his lunch and eat a ham sandwich. <laughs> and Okan says, that's disgusting, you eat that. Don't you know that pigs are the only animals that eat their own excrement, but more colorful term, right? So, and, and you know, my, I've got another uh, really good guy that I work with there, a Turkish uh, friend, a uh, co-worker, who's, who's uh, Muslim as well. And, uh, you know, they, they still stay away from, they still stay away from pigs, as of course to the Jewish people. You know, well, not the ethnically Jewish, but certainly the religiously Jewish. And I suppose it's probably a lot of cultural Jews that stay away from ham and have no idea why, except they stay away from it, for the same reason that a lot of Roman Catholics go and eat fish on Fridays and have no idea why <laughs> during Lent. Now, I don't mean to mock it, but it's mock-worthy. Um, so be holy. So God is holy, right? So, so the question is, how is a sinful human called to be holy, but entirely unholy, supposed to be in the presence of such a holy God without being obliterated? But God wants to fellowship with His people. He wants to be in the presence of... He wants to be with His creatures. He delights to be with His creatures. He delights to be with His people. But He can't. He can't be in the presence of filth. Moral filth. Right? Well, so, so God provides the way. So, this is the, his kingdom. He, and his kingdom is a kingdom that demands holiness. And, and man's response is, is abject unholiness already. You know, I mean, all, Moses had no sooner gotten all the instructions for the tabernacle and how to build it and all the wonderful things God's building into it. When the event happens with the golden calf, you know. So, in his love... And in his grace, and, 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 and consistent with his promise way back to Abram, he's going to make a way for that to happen. Okay? It, it's, it's not unlike the words of Jesus that we hear. It says, Fear not, little flock. It is your heavenly Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That was in God's mind way back then, too. It wasn't... God didn't think of that at that moment when Jesus was addressing people that were... Un- Why would Jesus say that? Why would Jesus say that to anybody who's supposed Fear not, little flock. Even if you don't know the, te- the context, what would you suppose the context is that would be the setting for a statement from Jesus that says, Fear not, little flock. It's your father, your heavenly Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Why would he say that, you suppose? To encourage. Yeah, right. I mean, why would you say to a little kid, don't be afraid, or, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be okay, right? Yeah, because there's something in them that's concerned, fearful, anxious, you know? And in the overwhelming weight of all the things that the Pharisees had bought, and all that, the intensity of their culture, and the hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years of history and exile and wrath and, and blessing and cursing, right? Man, that's exhausting. 
I mean, that, that, that sort of spiritual exhaustion almost like is subsumed by the DNA and then passed along if possible, you know? But, but again, fear not. So what is God's way? Well, how important, again, is holiness to God? Moses learned how important holiness is to God, right? Deuteronomy, which, you know, we'll get to in a couple of weeks, 32, 51 to 52. This is because you broke faith with me in the midst of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh. Now, there are those who say, boy, you know, I always feel bad for Moses after all he did. He doesn't get to see the promised land. This is how important holiness is to God. And the wilderness is in, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. So you don't get to go to the Holy Land. Because you didn't, the promised land, you didn't treat me as holy. The one who I put in to mediate between, you know, along with the rest of the Levitical priesthood. You did not treat me as holy in the midst of people. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. What does holy mean anyway? What is, what is it? Somebody tell us, what does it mean to be What does holiness mean? What is holy? Another word for it. What's a synonym? Without sin. Thesaurusites. Do we have any thesaurusites among us? Anyone know what a thesaurusite is? <laughs> Someone uses a, th- a thesaurus on a regular basis. Not a T-Rex's relative? That's right. Could be. You're right. Yeah, a thesaurus is there, so if you're the kind of dinosaur that just uses the same words all the time, you can go learn a new one. Where a thesaurus is just where you look up synonyms for words, right? Well, you know, rich in vocabulary. Anytime you write, instead of using a word, happiness, they use all the time, go to the thesaurus instead and expand your way. Unsinful. It certainly is unsinful, yep. Separate. Yeah, it's right. Yeah, it's apart. separate. It's set apart. Yeah. So, in what way is God set apart? I mean, how is God set apart? Mm-hmm. I mean, He is, in His being, He is separate and distinct. You know, He is holy by... And in, in, in everything God does with the Israelites to create a people for Himself is in stark contrast to what's going on in the nations around them. All right? And that continues to us as well. We are to live in lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we shine as lights, the scripture says, right? We are to live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So it's, it's no different. So God is always making that sort of distinction between that which is holy and that which isn't, that which is clean, that which is unclean. So how is God going to go about this? How is God going to... God reveals to us in Leviticus His method for making it possible for humans, fallen humans, to be in the presence of God without being, again, just, just completely obliterated in, 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 a, in a nanosecond. Right? And He does that, God does that, reveals that to us in Leviticus through ritual, through priesthood, and through purity. This, there's a lot in here about ritual, priesthood and purity and the day of atonement sort of binds them all together like right in the middle of the book right so ritual priesthood and purity this is why we see all the rituals this is why we see everything about priesthood this is why we see all the purity um, ordinances in this book as well as you know particularly in the in, in the uh, in the Torah so we'll take a look at a little bit here at, at the rituals right so the rituals God puts in place and commands are His provision for worship and fellowship. Right? They, they, they're His provision for our worship and for our fellowship with Him. He provides for that. Now, see how consistent God is? Remember back when He needed the covenant with Abram? How did He, how did he, uh, how did he ratify that covenant? Remember? 
What, what, what was the what was the thing that they did? Blood, bloodshed, sprinkled blood, satisfied yes. it with blood and water. Yes, he did. And, and and when God made that covenant, what was the specific ceremony that took place? Cut the animals. Right, cut the animals' hand after, and typically, I mean, again, two people were supposed to sort of participate <clears throat> in that ceremony. And, and the thing was, I will right, we'll cut the animal in half. Each half sort of represents each one side in the bargain. And if I don't fulfill my part of the covenant, may this happen to me. <laughs> But 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 God did that Himself while Abram was sleeping, right? God passed through the pieces Himself, and so and so that same thing God is carrying out now. He's He's going to make the way. He demands holiness. He demand, demands a certain a certain way that things are, so that He can be among His people. But the people can't do that, so God's going to. So God's doing exactly what He said He was going to do. Okay, He's going to make this covenant happen. God is going to have a people for Himself, right? So. So we have this whole system of sacrifices and festivals, right? Anyone, anyone, anyone think of the, the formal name of some of the sacrifices? I'm not going to go over all of them because we're not going to get too in the weeds, but I'm just curious. Yeah. Burnt offering. There's a burnt offering, right. And what would that be for? Do you know? They're, they're all related, but... That's how it begins the book of Leviticus. begins with yes, the burnt offering. Yes, that's exactly right. The whole thing has to go up to God. Yes, yep. And, and then there's what other kinds? Any, any, any other come Like a... Peace offering. A peace offering, right? So that's, that's sort of like, yep. That's meal offering. Yeah, the meal offering. Transgression offering. Yeah, the wave offering. Yeah, the wave offering. <laughs> this, this wave offering, right? That's not going to the ocean and praying, by the way. <laughs> that's a different. That's a different wave offering. Just taking a bloody thing and waving it back and forth. Yeah, I mean, I think it was typically done with like the breast. I don't know. This, uh, there was the grain offerings and things. So yeah. it wasn't yep. always. It wasn't always. There was there was grain offerings. Yep. Yep. It wasn't always blood. No. Yeah. In fact. God does make the point, like at one point, you can't have a bull, you don't have goats, you don't, you can't even afford a couple of turtle doves. Bring an ephah fine flour, right? But and I think though, as we'll talk about, I think the Day of Atonement sort of though has that in mind. I think the Day of Atonement has in mind that there are certain people that can't make that blood offering, right? But that's an excellent point because not everybody could even have little turtle doves that they could bring, two little turtle doves, right? So, uh, we had the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, and the guilt offerings, all for the, for the offenses that men and women committed against God. And then there were the festivals and feasts. Anybody think of what those would be? Of course, the Day of Atonement is the big one, but other ones. <coughs> yeah, yeah, the, the Feast of Booths. Anyone else? Anyone in the back? Brother Rich, give us a festival. Uh, <laughs> gotcha, man. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, there's one right there. Yeah, I just want to make sure we hear from the back because that, that's, they're, 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 they're separate, really. There's holiness back here. There's, there's, there's holiness back here. Despite Dave defiling it, there's holiness back here. <laughs> uh, don't worry, I defiled the building when I walked into it. So, um, Right? Yeah, so there's, there's a number of these. And the festivals, right? So obviously the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, all these offerings were sort of the whole life for life thing, right? It was a, it was substitutionary, as we'll, we'll talk about a little bit more too. But so, but the festivals were God's way again. God gives us so many ways of remembering Him, you know. So they had to do with their Exodus and in the in in the Passover, all the things that they would regularly celebrate that reminded them that they were a special called out people. It reminded them of what God is like and who God is and who they are and what their relationship is. Now it's. Far cry from the same thing, but we have birthdays and anniversaries, 
both work anniversaries, wedding anniversaries. And, and, and by those things, we always celebrate what? What are we celebrating when we do that? Remembering. Yeah, we're remembering. And what are we remembering? Yeah. Today, Renee's five. Today, Renee's five. Oh, we got a singular in the church. Yeah, we got a singular. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Man, you're getting old, Gary. Imagine that. <laughs> so, 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 um, so, the way he's going to remember and celebrating, and, you know, if you have a, a birthday or your wedding anniversary, you can't but remember all the things you've been through together as a husband and wife, you know? You have your, I mean, hopefully you reflect on it more often than just that day, but fortunately there is that day when you say, wow, right, brother? I mean, you look back and say, look at all my wife, the woman that God gave to me. Look what we did together. Look at the family we have. Look at the, look at the bumps and the bruises and the high. Look at it, man. Look at it. Look at what... It's amazing what God has done, right? You look at that, and, and you, it's amazing to look back over the course of a life together. Um, or if it's the case, you know, you're, you're not a married person. You're family. Your dad is 88 years old, Dave. I mean, Dave's been telling me stories about his dad since the day I met him, actually, you know, 30 years ago. You know what I mean? And, and, and it's just it's always this sense of, you know, we, we remember stuff, and we... we it's meaningful to us. But God keeps that meaning alive in His people through the festivals. You know, those different ways of celebrating God. Celebrating their relationship. You know? And, and just the way it reminds us that God wants relationship with His people. He deeply wants that. You know, we get all bogged down in the theology of uh, the, the impassibility of God. You want to tell us what that is, Gary? God's impassibility. That there's uh, virtues and attributes of God that uh, are not transmitted. Mm. Yeah. That, that, and, and then also... I'm sorry? They're exclusively His own. Yep. And what else is there about the things that some would argue are not His own? Like that God is... Unchanging. Yeah, He's, he's unchanging, so He doesn't really experience emotions. Right? Because emotions, people who experience, they have fluctuating emotions. That might somehow represent a change in... As some argue... A change in God from moment to moment that is really a, a change that was wrought by something that went on in His creation. So therefore, God, we jeopardize His sovereignty and His grace. God experiences emotion, I think. Look at what He does. Look at what He does. Doesn't it say He was angry? Yeah. Look what Jesus did. Yep. He wept, He was moved. Yep. yep. And, and, and again, He enjoys being. Right? He enjoys being. So yeah, we do see God's it only seems to talk about, although it does talk about pleasing to God, so God experiences pleasure. Right? He's rising, the rising smoke. So so we have blood, 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 more blood. Right? In this Leviticus. And it's substitutionary, right? So the offender had to choose a lamb or a bull from their flock and kill it at the tent of meeting. Okay? You know, again, except for the, sort of for the, for the very poor, right? Uh, they had to kill at the tent of meeting. Uh, so, so what, what is it about blood that's so meaningful? What's about blood that's so meaningful? <coughs> it's life. It's life, right? I mean, is it from our nurses, right? You know the value of blood. We have a couple of nurses here. Um, in this, um, uh, Sister Mickey recently gave me a book to read by Philip Yancey and some other. I don't want to say some other dude. I don't know if it's a woman. The uh, brand, Yancey and Brand, called "In the Likeness of God," and in it, there's a discussion about blood because this guy's a medical doctor. I guess that would be Paul Brand. He's a medical doctor, 
<laughs> and then he says, uh, initially, I guess he didn't want to be a doctor, wanted nothing to do with it. He's a, he's a brother from uh, from India. But eventually he came around when he became Christian and began to see the, what, the, what the blood meant. <laughs> so he writes about it. He says, medically, blood sustains life by carrying away the chemical byproducts that would interfere with it. In short, by cleansing. And he says, as I reflect on the body of Christ, the blood metaphor offers a fresh and enlightening perspective on a perpetual problem in the body. Sin. In blood, we have the perfect analog to reveal the nature of sin. That's just being the perfect analogy, okay? To reveal the nature of sin and forgiveness with startling clarity. Medical knowledge has only enhanced our understanding. Just as blood cleanses the body of harmful metabolites, forgiveness through Christ's blood cleanses away the waste products, sins, the things that impede true health, spiritual health. Let me, yeah. I was thinking, blood also provides on its way from the heart to the cells sustenance. Yep. And energy and movement and yes, it does. everything else. All kinds of neat things. Quick little reference on blood. By the way, if you have never looked at like blood platelets, little blood cells, they look just like donuts. <laughs> they do. They look just like donuts. Which, which kind of gives a whole new meaning to gives a whole new meaning to America runs on Duncan, doesn't it? <laughs> but they do. They look just like little donuts. The blood transports oxygen, carbon dioxide, nutrients, water, hormones, waste substance, and heat. The waste substances are moved to the liver and kidneys, which remove toxins from the blood. Urea is removed is moved from the liver to the kidneys. Oxygen is transported to organs to keep them healthy, while carbon dioxide is moved back to the heart and lungs. Nutrients gleaned from digestion, such as vitamins and minerals, are moved to the various organs that need them. Hormones are moved to the areas where they are needed from the places they are made. Heat is transported to places like the skin to keep the body at the correct temperature. Blood is everything. And scripture says the life is in the blood, right? And, <clears throat> and we give it to you for, for Tony. But anyway, so... We have the significance of blood going on. Something must die, right? So the blood represents life, and so the taking, the, the spilling of blood represents death. So something must die for sin, because sin brings about death, we know, back from Genesis. Something has to die. Alright? But blood also, we know in 1 John 1 7, right? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses, cleanses us from sin. Right? It carries away that byproduct. So, so we have ritual, and then we have priesthood, right? Now the priest represents God to man and man to God, right? So even with the sacrificial system, and even so, man cannot interact directly with interact directly with God, right? A priest is kind of like sort of the hazmat suit between God and man, and, and vice versa in this setting, right? Because even with the sacrifices, they still need someone to mediate that, right? You need someone to mediate that sort of relationship. Again, this is God's desire to be among his people and at the same time to make a clear revelation of the hallowedness of his name. You know, hallowed be your name. It's still there. It's still there. We teach it to our children, you know, the, the Lord's Prayer so-called. So, so God wants to make sure he's distinctly, very clear about the hallowedness of his name and his, his desire to be in his people but the incompatibility of a sinner being in the presence of God, right? And it's interesting because even though the sinner did the slaying, the priest had to do the sprinkling of the blood on the altar, right? So, and, 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 and washed the entrails and the lobe of the liver and stuff. Just a little bit from, from the first chapter of Leviticus. 
If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a man without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, which is his, from his lamb, his bull, whatever he's raised, he's invested money in. He was going to be using for food, he was for something. This is going to cost this person. He's going to lay his hand on it, and he's going to be the one that kills him. So he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, bring the blood and throw, throw the blood against the sides of the altar. Alright? So you take this bull of this lamb, the thing's gushing, you're going to carry that blood, you're going to bring it in, you're going to throw it against the altar. That altar is the brazen altar in the courtroom? It would have to be, right? Yeah. Right. Yep. And, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces. This, I mean, this is graphic, right? Shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire. You can, so you picture this. I mean, they, these priests did this all the time. They took animal heads and they had to arrange the entrails and the legs. They had to arrange them in such a way on the wood. But its entrails and legs he shall wash with water. Isn't it interesting? He has to wash the guts. You've got to wash the entrails, your testes, the internal organs. And I think about why. What are they going to wash that for? It's going to be burnt up. I don't know. I think it represents just how deep sin is. Just how deep the uncleanness is. It's an inward thing. Jesus said, wash the inside of the cup and the outside will be clean also. Mm. Right? So this, that's all I can come up with. I don't know. Maybe there's a theological explanation for why they had to wash the entrails. But, I mean, that was one of their jobs, man. They had to wash intestines and, and, and hacked off legs crazy but again you know uh, it, in, in the, the lobe of the liver and the kidneys all the way now what pot was reserved for God alone the fat the fat was reserved for God alone nowadays we think of fat as the unhealthiest piece of the meat it's the best piece of the meat right you burn it just right on the grill and eat that greasy Oh, oh man, man. it is just right. <laughs> Full of flavor and oh, it's outrageous how good that is. But that power was reserved for God because even in that culture, it represented the represented you know the food Nazis had the nutrition Nazis weren't alive at that point, so they weren't there to tell him you shouldn't be eating all that fat. That was the part for God. That was reserved for Him. So God requires holiness as He rules His kingdom. Man has violated the relationship with God. God responds by making a way. And now we see how the priests, the ones that are supposed to mediate, because man can't deal directly with God, do a God with man. Now we see the priest, Aaron's two sons, right? And Leviticus 10, 2, 3, <coughs> I'm sorry, Leviticus 10, chapters 2 to 3. Now Adab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came up before the Lord and consumed them, and they were dead. They died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Aaron was so... He, he said, oh, my son's just a roasted alive. And, and, and God didn't allow him to... to um, God did allow some to grieve for him. But God did not allow Aaron to, to, to weep. Why? Because his holiness is more important than the grief shed over his wretched, sinful sons who went in there and did something unauthorized as priests. Wait a minute, you're supposed to represent the people to me and me to the people. Look what you did. Imagine what that must have been that fire just instantly incinerate them. Jesus said those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. God put these worship things, these things in place 
so that people could, you know, worship him. Not all worship of God is acceptable to God. That's the news news for the culture, right? God must define and order the worship of his creatures. Why? So that they can maximally benefit from the experience of worshiping God. It isn't just some power-hungry, ego-maniacal being that just demands to be worshipped. God created us in such a way that when we worship Him, we are full. This is what we're supposed to be. What's what's so lacking in us is is right worship of God. You know, that's that's part of the necessity for the sacrifice. That, That worship is a holy thing. And that we are completed beings when we that's why in scripture you, in the revelation you see the elders and you see the, the thousands upon thousands upon thousands worshipping around the throne there's this massive scene you see it in 4 and 5 of the revelation of this incredible worship and you just get a sense of profundity there because that's what we're created for because worship is how you relate to God it doesn't just mean being down on the ground worshipping bowing it means living life a certain way. That's worship. Loving your neighbor itself is worship. The keeping of the Decalogue was supposed to be a form of worship. Right? It's our failure to worship God. And then the book of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You don't get to be a false religion, God says. You don't decide you're going to worship me that way. My son, Jesus, <laughs> is the way to worship. That's how you relate with me. That's how we interact. Do not bring Muhammad before me. Do not exercise your Baha'i faith before me. Do not talk about the common brotherhood of men and women under God. Don't do that. That is, that is unauthorized fire. <laughs> oh man, right? Albert Bayless in his book From Creation to Cross says, being linked to a holy God is not a trifling matter. Right? Man, we get That's what Leviticus is for. Leviticus is there that we should read and study and be mindful of it. Why? Because we forget this stuff. This is the, the Leviticus shows us what is so intensely holy about we words fail us about the the abject otherness of God and, and the very idea that He lets us into Him. <laughs> right? That He lets us be with Him. And now we come to um. But purity, so we've talked about ritual and, and priesthood. Now there's purity, there's, there's a ritual, and moral, pu- ritual and moral purity. There's pure and impure. Again, how do we see Jesus address this? Blessed are the pure and hot wife, but they shall see God. The impure cannot enter God's presence. And, and, and Leviticus deals with the issue, as does other parts of the Torah, of how we become contaminated and impure. Become contaminated by touching death. And, and, and the end of life and death is seen in, in, in reproductive and other bodily fluids and skin disease and dead bodies. Okay? Now, being impure in, in that way is not sinful in and of itself. But going into God's presence that way is. <laughs> it's like a little kid. You They're adorable. They come in from playing out in the mud. And they're wonderful until they step on mom's carpet. Right? All of a sudden, hell breaks loose. Right? He's so... There's nothing wrong with that kid being all muddy and dirty and playing outside. But don't drag that into the living room. That's the way it is with God, too. So, we have 
animals that are pure and impure, birds that are pure and impure, or clean and unclean. And God makes that distinction. Why? So people don't bring death into His presence. Right? All these things, they come contaminated by death. You don't go into the presence of God with death. You're unclean. It's impure. So again, God constantly teaching that they are, a, they are a distinct people. They are a holy nation. They are a royal priesthood. Corinthians says, come out from among them and be separate. God's holiness is effective in every area of our lives. Even when we don't see it, when we forget about it, we don't, we don't confess for it, we don't whatever. It, it, it becomes part of us and we, we, we don't realize that we're caught up in something. Same thing with the Israelites. Hence, the Day of Atonement. Right? The Day of Atonement, right in the midst here. Uh, it, it's the annual super cleansing. <laughs> it's the annual super cleansing that goes on. It's likely not, not every sin was atoned for in that particular year. It's likely that parents that had a drunken son that was rebellious and constantly going against them, not every one of those sons was dragged to the gate and stoned to death as he was supposed to be. Think about that. I don't think most parents did that, even though it was an ordinance. I don't think there were a lot of... Although maybe there were some, right? But I guess, you know... So what went on there? There had to be a way to deal with the sins that Israel had committed, and also, as we'll see, there was other problems that had to be addressed. And so there were two goats on the Day of Atonement. One goat was killed as a sacrificial offering, and the other had the sins of the nation of Israel confessed on it, and it was sent out into the wilderness never to return. Right? God sending sin away. Why? Again, so that he could deal with his people. So that he could, so he could be with his people. So he had to see, he had to see it as ceremony in a sense. At least for now, he's teaching them something. All the stuff that's going to be fully understood and, and it makes complete sense of Jesus. Right? Again, without the book of Leviticus, Jesus is hard to understand what's going on. But so, in Leviticus 16, when we're, when we're looking at the Day of Atonement, we see a little, some subtle things going on, uh, important nuances. Aaron shall are in verse 6. So first, the high priest Aaron needed his sin atoned for. Here's the priest, the only one that can go into the Holy of Holies, but before he can go into the Holy of Holies, he's got to have his sin atoned for. So Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Okay? Now the difference, of course, we know we know the difference in Jesus. And if we have time in a moment, we'll reference some of those verses. Um, uh, and in, in, in verse, verse 15 of that chapter, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat. Remember, the mercy seat covered the tent, it covered the, it, 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 it covered the ark, and inside the ark, among other things, were the Ten Commandments, right? The law, right? Why? Because it was constantly being violated. It needed a covering. It needed to be covered for. The breaking of those had to be covered for. Thus, and then it goes on to say, in verse 16, even the holy place itself, the holy of holies, had to be sprinkled and atoned for because the Israelites had made it impure by their sin. So in verse 16, thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. The holy place itself had to be atoned for. Because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. All he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. Right? So this uncleanness is so deep and so profound that even the holy place had to first be atoned for. And after all that was done, then in verse 26 we see, in verse 26, and he who lets the goat... Uh, go to Azazel, and I won't get into that because that's a bit of a mystery, shall wash his clothes, bathe his body, 
And then it goes on to talk about laying the hands on the sins on the goat, confessing all the sins of Israel, and sending that goat off. Right? But it was only after that that it could be done. So, and we get a contrast if you look at Hebrews and in, in, in uh, the book of Hebrews, you'll see a contrast. So let me take a quick look over. I know I'm going fast, but that's okay. Hebrews eight one to two, just contrasting. The high priesthood of Jesus, right? Now the point in which we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places. In the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Verse 13 of the same chapter. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place for holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Okay? Jesus is, is, is more than all of these things. Verses 11 to 12. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, and by means of the blood of goats and calves, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Not, not one that was subject to an annual subscription renewal every year. Right? Why? Because it couldn't take away sin. And it, just lastly, chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. Every priest stands daily at his service, talking about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins fully and entirely. So that tells us everything God was doing was showing and teaching something. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should meet a footstool under his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hallelujah. That one-time sacrifice. We don't need to be going and killing bulls and goats and, and all those things. This one-time offering made by a sinless priest who doesn't have to make atonement first for his own sin, although he did carry the sins of the people, is sufficient to sanctify for all time. One sacrifice. Okay, so the big contrast there between... But that's what God had in place for the time, for a time as he's beginning to show and teach and progressively reveal. I mean, if, if you went from, say, Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, the Gospel of Matthew, there would just be a lot there that would just be utterly confusing. God, through, the, through a, a, a system of progressive revelation, it was important for God to reveal over the course of time and history, taking thousands of years to reveal truths about himself that would, that would ultimately sort of culminate in... This is the point of my incarnation, right? So, with ritual priesthood, purity, all in, in, in all that, you know, circumscribed by the Day of Atonement, God has provided for what we see in Numbers 1, what God was able to speak to Moses in the tent. <laughs> or as one commentator put it, Leviticus worked! <laughs> Leviticus worked! Moses is able to come into the tent, into the presence of God now. We also know, however, that the Israelites would soon turn to idolatry, you know, at the very end of Leviticus, Again, we hear from Moses all the warnings, devastating, terrible things are going to happen. They would soon turn to idolatry, right? And they would abandon this beautiful arrangement that God prepared so that he could be among his people. So they didn't just violate the terms of the covenant, 
They, violated, they went against the God of the covenant. They went against the God that put all these things in. That's like such a personal affront. It wasn't just their, their idolatry. It, wasn't, it isn't, I don't mean by just. Obviously, we saw what happened when people entered, the priests entered without authorized fire. But this is, this is a smack against the, actual, the being himself, against God himself. This isn't forgetting something. This is saying, I, I, I choose another God other than you. And so we know that exile and death would ultimately befall Israel. For that is what is fitting when such a marvelous salvation is so richly, richly provided for and, and just, just cast aside. So Leviticus is such an important book. It teaches us so much about the holiness and the character of God and the lengths to which he goes to to his people is to say, this is what I'm, this is what I'm willing to do for relationship with you. This is, I'm, look, at, look at how I'm providing everything for you. But humanity being what it is. It's not because in some way there was a want of provision from God that these things didn't work out. So take that book of Leviticus with you and let it dwell richly. Don't yes. you think it, Moses is the only person that never had to do all of that stuff to come into God's presence? All the priests had to wash themselves and offer mm. sacrifices and yeah. all that other stuff and Moses could just go yeah. in. Yeah. So. Yeah. The builder was, of the house. Was Moses himself a Kohathite? I don't know. Because you know that the, the tribe of Levi had various mm. families within it. You mm. had the Kohathites, the Merorites, yeah. the Gershonites, and only the Kohathites had privileges to be yeah. the priests. Good question. Don't and know. The rest were it's just interesting that he was a Levite, and the Levites, it was a very tribal thing, right? Mm. All the tribes sort of went with the. <laughs> it's funny how the tribes stuck together in that, you know? Right. So everybody should understand, too, that not every Levite was a priest, gotcha. but every priest was a Levite. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, you have to be within that. There's a number of things you have to be a certain age. You have to be. There's even lineage. You know what I mean? Direct lineage. Yeah. I'm really amazed that anyone gets saved today, because there's such a cultural disconnect to what the Bible teaches in relationship. Mm-hmm. That there's life in the blood. Blood must be shed in order for a remission of sin. And all of these concepts mm-hmm. are, are concepts of antiquity. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm a farmer. Mm-hmm. This stuff came naturally to me. Right. Death was all around me. Mm-hmm. I slaughtered my own animals. I've been in the butcher, uh, into butcher factories, right? mm-hmm. you know, slaughterhouses. And we're so far removed from that now. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, we, look, we live in a day and age where people think their food comes from the grocery store. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, mm-hmm. you know, those aren't dead animals mm-hmm. in, in the meat counter. Mm-hmm. It's meat, right? Yep. So, I mean, um, how God has showed us power to be able to save people who mm-hmm. just aren't culturally prepared yeah. to understand concepts that are so otherworldly to them is amazing. Yeah, and, and I think that's why as well, though, again, a reference to the back of the bulletin today, what does it mean to be wise for salvation, right? Mm-hmm. When, what they had to make them wise, wise for salvation. What does it mean to be wise for a, a, a relationship? Not, it's not about how do I get saved. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be wise for a lifestyle in relationship with God? What does that mean? And the Old Testament was there to show and teach and so that stuff can be taught after. I think sometimes, you know, not sometimes, but often, God does the miraculous thing and redeems a person for himself mm-hmm. in the way that he does it. And then he takes him back and shows him everything. He says, come on, I want to show you, you know, exactly how all this came about and, and what all of this means. And even though the person didn't grow up that way, in that, they certainly can... Everybody has a moral compass. 
Everybody has a conscience. Everyone knows about the evil that they do and the things that they do. Or at least they know evil. Even if they call something else evil that isn't evil, they have a notion of evil. So they have this concept of something isn't the way it should be. And, and God shows us, you know, this is how it should be because I'm the guy that built should into the creation, right? So, How about a verse like this, Todd? Jesus says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. Hmm? I mean, something like that can be like an opening of a door to explain substitution, one taking the place of another uh, on the behalf of the guilt of the one by the one who's innocent taking the guilt and going from that direction. Yeah, I understand the bloodshed, and I, I realize it, it, it's an oddity when you're trying to talk to young people, particularly, or collegians, you know, and this whole sacrificial system sounds so like out of space to the it is but you don't even and I don't you even have to get into that with them you, all you got to do is no, tap into that sense of uh, that's not intended to be dismissive of your, of your remark because that's a, such an important verse you know because you're going to be talking about Jesus hopefully eventually with people but even if you're just sort of starting out a discussion with them you're getting in touch with people's sense of morality of the way things should be Everyone believes things should be a certain way. That is such a starting point. You know what I mean? And that's what the, the whole God is all about. There is a way things should be. Sin has distorted what that is, but we have a touch point there. Everyone believes that there's a certain way that things should be, and that's a starting place for any discussion. Why do you think that the way you think is the way things should be? And why do you think Jesus... Oh, the God is, yeah. the way I did was the fact that it demonstrates God's power to save. Oh, yeah. You know, we, we're, we're fighting against the culture because oh, definitely. God doesn't have to fight against the culture. Yeah, no. All he does is save yeah. no matter what the culture turns out to be. He has that power to save in any culture. And I do think that his people, though, the church, are supposed to be as radically different to the culture as that book right. of Leviticus right. seems. Yeah. Right. We should be so... And I'm so not at times. You know what I mean? I find myself complaining about the same things and... Sometimes I think if you were listening to me and discuss with co-workers, you would think I live under the same level of godless despair that they do. Right? That's something Leviticus is speaking to me about. We should be as odd to them as the book of Leviticus. <laughs> How's that? If you take nothing else as well. Go out today and be as big an oddball and screwball to them as the book of Leviticus looks to anyone that would open it and read it. Now we've got to have someone. Who, someone had a hand up. Whoever had a hand up, you get to pray. Dave, you had a hand up. You want to pray? He's going to stand here so we catch it on the recording. Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, thank you so much for bringing us together for this uh, Sunday school class, Father, to, to give us more insight on a book that uh, sometimes we don't know a lot about. And Father, help this to spur us and give us momentum for a fine worship service. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.